We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. On the podcast for this episode, the story of one Vladimir Zelensky, the journey of Ukraine's charismatic leader from actor to president to war commander-in-chief is well known. But how have the events of that conflict itself shaped a seemingly unlikely trajectory? Simon Schuster is the journalist and writer to tell that story. He's reported from Russia and Ukraine for over 17 years, mostly covering the region for Time magazine. His new book is The Showman, inside the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Vladimir Zelensky. Joining Simon today to discuss the book is Carl Miller. Carl is co-founder of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. He's an associate of the Imperial War Museum and author of The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. Let's hear more from Carl now. Our guest today is Simon Schuster. His coverage of the war began in 2014 when he was the first foreign journalist to arrive in Crimea as Russian troops took over the peninsula. In 2019, Simon met and interviewed Volodymyr Zelensky himself for a profile for his presidential campaign, and he's continued covering his administration in the years that followed. When the full-scale invasion began the following year, Simon spent months embedded with the president's team, securing unparalleled access to their compound in Kiev, where he wrote his first book, which we'll be discussing the themes of today, The Showman. Simon, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you for having me. Simon, take us into the day of the invasion itself for us to begin. Take us into Bankova Street, the president's compound, and and what it it was like in that moment as everyone kind of contemplated that thing that changed the world. Well, the the first thing that came through that morning, I think, and everything that um, 
the president, his team, the security guards, everything they were doing, uh, it was clear um, just how unprepared they were for uh, the the invasion to take this form, to attack Kiev first, to go straight for the presidential compound uh, in the first hours of the invasion. So what, what you saw there on Benkova Street um, in, in the presidential offices, um, that is where President Zelensky went first, first thing in the morning. He got up uh, out of bed after he was roused out of bed um, by by phone calls and messages warning him and telling him that the invasion had started. He went straight to the office and he told his team to to meet him there. Um, this the scene was you know very tense, somewhat chaotic. Um, you had soldiers trying to uh, barricade the doors in some cases with furniture, you know chairs. Uh, riot shields, uh, writing desks, uh, whatever they had, um, because they really didn't have the, the, the material in place, quite literally, to um, prepare for what seemed to be the main risk at the time, which was Russian commandos breaking physically through the doors and trying to uh, besiege the, the compound. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was that was the scene in, in those early hours um, as, as Zelensky tried to get his bearings um, to see uh, how much of his government, how how many officials had defected and fled, who was still around and, and to try to begin to lead and, and to begin to to uh, form a wartime administration. That pivotal decision for Zelensky to not flee, to stay um, against the good-natured urgings, I think, of many of his allies, wasn't it? Because he'd just been at Munich Security Conference and had actually been urged to stay there and form a government in exile. Had that decision in his mind, do you think, already been made as he as he turned up in Bankova Street that first morning? It, it was already determined that, that he would lead an administration that would refuse to flee in the face of the Russian assault. Yes, he had made that made up his mind about that um, quite clearly. The, the issue is he didn't expect for the invasion to take the form that it did. Like, like I said just a minute ago, you know, the Russians went straight for him. Um, the expectation in his mind, and indeed in, in the minds of, of most of the military commanders um, that I spoke to, uh, was uh, a much more limited invasion escalation coming from the east, where Russia would try to chomp off some more pieces of Ukrainian territory in the industrial region there known as the Donbas. Um, they didn't really expect, at least as the kind of most likely scenario, uh, this this full-scale invasion that would try to uh, surround and besiege Kiev in the first hours. So uh, that is something you have to keep in mind when you think about, yes, he had decided not to flee, but the circumstances he was he was facing in those early hours were, were quite different to what he expected. And, you know, as, as one of his advisors told me, and I quote him in the book, there's really no way to calculate as you sit there and prepare scenarios for the war, scenarios for, for d defensive actions. There's no way to calculate that one psychological factor. Will the leadership crack and run when faced with mortal threats uh, to, to themselves, their families? Um, and, and that was something that nobody nobody knew. I, I think Zelensky surprised all of us uh, by, by his decision uh, very courageously to remain there despite the, the, the incredible threats to, to him and, and everyone around him. So Simon, take us back for a bit then before we before we again approach um, the invasion itself. Uh, tell us a bit about how you first met Zelensky and your your first and early impressions of him as a as a man and a you know a, at that point a, a a presidential hopeful. Yes, I met him in March 2019 when he was um, a few months into his presidential campaign. He was then already leading in the polls uh, in most polls it was clear that he would be a um, very serious contender, maybe the front runner. 
so I told my editors, you know, hey, there's this comedian who seems to be pulling ahead in the elections in Ukraine. Um, maybe we should pay attention to this guy. And they said, yeah, go go for it. You know, they saw it as a, as a kind of amusing uh, story for Inside the Magazine about a comedian running for president. And so I profiled him then. I, I got in touch with his team. At the time, it was you know very easy to get access to Zelensky. They were not getting a lot of requests from international media back then because nobody took him very seriously. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but uh, broadly speaking, you know, he, he wasn't seen as, as uh, kind of the, the, the man at the center of the world's attention by any means back then. So I got to know him um, uh, for the first time during one of his comedy shows, which sort of doubled as a campaign rally. Um, and I hung out with with him and his comedy troupe. Uh, his, a lot of his friends were back there, you know, and they were kind of eating takeout, drinking, partying backstage. And then during the show, and then after the show, we went back to Zelensky's dressing room, just the two of us with a photographer um, to talk and take his portrait there. Um, and the impression was, honestly, this guy ain't ready for what he's walking into. Um, he was very naive, very optimistic, and very you know easygoing when it came to the very grave challenges that he was clearly about to face if he won the presidency. Um, by that point, just to remind some of your listeners, um, Ukraine had already been at war for five years in the Donbas with with the Russians. There had been a separatist war, um, you know, already uh, ongoing for for that long. So, in some sense, Zelensky was a wartime president from his first day in office. And and we talked about the fact that hey, his life was about to get a lot less fun uh, and a lot more difficult. Um, so, yeah, my impression was that uh, this guy is walking into a storm that he's not really, um, he, yeah, he doesn't know what he's getting himself into. What do you think? It, when it, when you interviewed him, was drawing him into politics? Because I, I was struck in your writing, Simon, about his earlier life, that th th this was not a man who was particularly political. He hadn't been involved in either of the two major revolutions, really, that had that had swept through Ukraine at that point. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he, he stayed on the sidelines, partly of, of those two revolutions. So we're talking about the Orange Revolution in 2004, 2005. And then uh, the Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution in 2014. Both of those things, he sort of stayed uh, on the sidelines. He didn't really participate. And from watching his comedy and his TV shows, it was difficult to guess whose side he was on politically. Um, and part of the reason for that was uh, financial. His television productions, his, his business and his show business was reliant on both investors and partners in Russia uh, and Ukraine. It had audiences, massive audiences, millions of people in both Russia and Ukraine. So he couldn't afford financially to, to alienate either one of those um, audiences. Uh, so that was certainly one reason. That changed uh, very quickly after Russia took military steps against Ukraine. During the first, what I would call the initial invasion in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and then moved troops and paramilitaries into eastern Ukraine to begin seizing more territory, sparking this really vicious war um, that began that, that late that spring and summer. At that point, Zelensky took a stand. Uh, and, you know, he began speaking out very vocally against the Russians and what they were doing. And he began winding down his businesses in Russia, which cost him about 85% of his revenue as a businessman, as a, as a showman, as an entertainer. So that was a big hit, but he took it on principle because he said he, he couldn't, you know, stand the idea of uh, 
taking the stage in Moscow with a smile on his face after what the Russians had done, stabbing Ukraine in the back by, by stealing this territory. So he, he was ang- greatly angered, almost like this latent Ukrainian patriotism or nationalism seemingly seemed like it was awoken a little bit after the seizure of Crimea. What, what happened next? I mean, did, did he become, was he already convinced that the polit- political class in Ukraine was unable itself to resolve that conflict and that you almost needed this external force to come in to, to make progress? I mean, I think his, psychologically he was primed for that skepticism about the political elites through his comedy. First and foremost, he was always a political satirist. He knew politics. He knew the politicians because he needed to uh, impersonate and make fun of them, to to needle them, to point out their flaws and weaknesses. So yes, he had a, 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 an abundant skepticism about the abilities of the, the political elites in Ukraine, uh, the leaders of both revolutions, and generally every politician. That was just you know the way he <laughs> thought about politics. He thought they were all crooks, more or less. Um, and, uh, you know, that comes through in his, in his comedy, for sure. Uh, so he thought he could do a better job. Um, uh, it wasn't difficult to convince him of this, um, you know, once that conversation really got going among his group of friends. You know, one quality that uh, abides in, in him, uh, despite the dramatic changes I saw over the course of my reporting and my acquaintance with him, one thing that is very consistent is confidence. That man believes in himself, <laughs> sometimes to a fault. Um, so when the conversations got going, and you know we can go into why why this happened, but um, for various reasons, people started suggesting to him, "Hey, if you're so smart, why don't you run for office?" Uh, and uh, you know it wasn't difficult to uh, to convince him that that he could he could do a better job. And what explains, do you think, his kind of staggering electoral success thereafter? Because he he kind of sweeps the boards, doesn't he? I mean, not quite the most kind of successful Ukrainian politician ever, but 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 certainly someone who is able to convince lots of different parts of Ukraine that he he's a, a better alternative than his than his opponents that in that moment. Yeah, the main the main reason I say there are two reasons. One is is the, the deep deep frustration and anger uh, within Ukrainian society at their political elites at the time. There was an interesting survey published by Gallup. Um, it was an international survey uh, published during the presidential elections, then in the spring of 2019. Uh, and it found that Ukrainians had the lowest level of regard and trust in their government of any country in the world. Nine percent said wow. said they trusted their government. <laughs> so uh, I think you know Zelensky's standing as an outsider to politics. Uh, his positioning himself in the campaign as someone who's going to you know come in uh, and whatever drain the swamp, um, uh, humble the elites, clean out the old stagnant ways of doing business in, in Ukrainian politics. That was very appealing. Um, and also his campaign was very clever in that he didn't take any firm positions on the most divisive issues in Ukrainian politics at the time. Um, he remained what one of his uh, key campaign strategists described to me as a kind of blank slate. Um, uh, as he put it, a, a, um, a canvas onto which voters could project their ideas of the perfect president. So that helped. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we have to talk about, you know, his his uh, TV show also, um, you know, the, 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 where he played the president on TV, a very likable and, and wonderful president. The president of our dreams, he was playing on television during the campaign. So that also had an impact. And, and Simon, how is your relationship with Zelensky developing over this time? So, You'd met him, you'd profiled him. Had, had you two clicked together? Like, how did he see you? You know, and why then was he kind of 
I suppose, like keen for you to play more of a of a kind of role in covering his administration after his election? I don't know. Um, maybe I was more persistent. Uh, I, w I wouldn't say him <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I don't presume to know what was in his head. Um, yeah, some of his advisors told me, you know, in expressing surprise at how much he was willing to invite me around, some of his advisors were like, you know, yeah, they, they found this strange. And, and they, they, they related to me, basically, yeah, you know, he seems to like you. But that, that's kind of, you know, what, I don't know what that means. Um, uh, I, I was persistent. I was covering the country very actively and intently. And, and I, I was interested in banging on the door uh, to talk to him, to, to report on, on him and his administration uh, well before it became the focus of um, international attention. That, that's just my job. I'm, I'm the Ukraine reporter. Uh, so I was interested in him, um, uh, and, and I reported on his administration through, for example, the, the scandal that led to Donald Trump's first, uh, impeachment in 2019, you know, Zelensky was a major character in that whole scandal. Uh, and I was reporting it and observing it from Kiev, uh, rather than the, the halls of Congress where the impeachment inquiry was going on. So, um, that helped. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just pers persistence. I was, I was kind of. I tried to always be around. I, I tried to always uh, be as close as I could, uh, and and um, so that put me, of course, in in a fairly unique position when the invasion started to, to come to them, meaning Zelensky and his team, and say, you know, I want to write this book. And um, I wouldn't say that there was like a, a great deal of enthusiasm by any means about it. Um, they are not book people generally, they're TV people, they're social media people. And especially at a time of war, they needed social media and television to reach their audiences very quickly uh, with the messaging that they needed to deliver. Books are no good for that. <laughs> they're very slow. Uh, so so they, they were like, yeah, you know, if you want to write a book, go for it. We know you, you know, we've worked with you before. You, you seem like a good guy. You know, they, they've seen, they'd seen my reporting. Um, they'd read my articles and yeah. It wasn't much more complicated than that. And, and what were you trying to do with the book, Simon? Were, were you trying to kind of capture, it's, it almost reads like this kind of authoritative, the historical record of that moment, like you're the person that's in there and you you see what's going on, you speak to everyone that seems to matter. And it's almost like you just want to capture and solidify that moment, you know, before it's gone. So that one day, perhaps when we all have slightly more breath and time, we can go back and reflect more sagely on on this on on what what happened then. Thank you. That's my sincere hope. Um, so the goal of the book was never to uh, analyze or pass judgment or criticize or endorse. It was to chronicle, to record what was happening and how we got here. So it's not only the kind of first months, the first year roughly of the invasion, but also the years leading up to it and all of these kind of tectonic shifts politically geopolitically that then that led up to the invasion. So to record those events, um, to kind of uh, uh, capture what was happening before the story settled into a set of uh, narratives, maybe propagandistic narratives, as often happens in wartime. So I was there in the moment in real time for many of the events described in the book uh, during the invasion, uh, talking to people before they really agreed amongst themselves, okay, this is how we're going to talk about this in the future. <laughs> that often happens. Um, and uh, so so the book records very fresh um, accounts of, of what was going on, often, you know, literally in the moment as these events are unfolding, I'm talking to the participants and, and telling them, you know, how, how are you feeling? How are you responding? How are you thinking about this? And so on. Um, so I, I think that I hope will be a, a valuable 
um, record uh, and a revealing one for the public understanding of the war now um, and and in years to come. Uh, that that was that was the goal. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Tell us a bit, Simon, about the the evolution beyond the initial days of the invasion in Bankova Street. So take us into the kind of diplomatic blitz that Zelensky then gets on. Because it also seems that you, you think that that was a moment when a different kind of president might really have failed to kind of rally the West in the way that Zelensky was able to do and secure the kind of support that he was able to secure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, insofar as the book presents an argument, I, I'd say that that's one that, that uh, you know, I'm, I think that the, the evidence events certainly stand that up, that his skills as a showman, as an entertainer, as someone who could really capture the attention of his audience. And in this case, his audience was all of us, the entire world. Um, those skills proved instrumental to his success as a wartime leader and indeed Ukraine's survival. Um, you know, I, I describe in some detail in the book how this um, strategy, his approach to doing this, to, to grabbing our attention, to shaping the narrative. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, detail in the book about how they thought about these things. Some of the conversations to a surprising to me, surprising extent, used the vocabulary of uh, script writing or movie making. So the, the way that they talked about um, presenting the story of this war and and making the world see the picture of the war that they wanted the world to see. They needed the world to see to maintain sympathy, to maintain support, and to keep those weapons flowing into Ukraine. You know, those things were connected in their minds. Uh, and, and Zelensky saw it, I think, uh, 
certainly early in the invasion as his primary mission to keep the world's the world on his side and and to convince them that this wasn't you know just some uh, pity case uh, at the edges of Europe. This was a conflict, a crisis, a war for their own values in the West, for all of our values, to to make the world experience, at least the democratic world, experience this war as their own. Uh, that that was the message. It's a very difficult message to to drive home, but he was very successful in his communications. And and I think one one uh, particular thing that he did that I think would have been much more difficult for another kind of leader, maybe a more traditional uh, politician or diplomat, um, was that he didn't communicate only with his counterparts in foreign countries in the West through you know secure line telephone calls. You know, Mister Mister President, right? Um, he was communicating directly to the people who elected those leaders through, you know, he spoke at the Grammy Awards. He would speak via video link at these massive rallies across Europe. You know, he was everywhere. He took every opportunity not only to speak to his counterparts, but to speak to the people who elected. Uh, that that was a, a very powerful uh, means of persuasion that, that he used to extraordinary effect in, in keeping the world on his side. And, and this this kind of interplay of of both things which remain elemental and continuous and constant in Zelensky, the, the ability to communicate, the amazing showmanship, the lean towards media and 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 the press, like it it, it really fascinatingly interplays, doesn't it, with also how Zelensky has changed and and that arc of his evolution from naive comedian through to well, I don't know how you would describe him now, Simon, battle hardened war leader. Tell us a bit about that evolution and 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 how that's happened, because it, it does sound at moments, at least, like Zelensky has become more cynical and actually more ready to use political power and the en enormous powers he has as a martial law president in ways that once he would probably have satirized and and criticized himself. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot to unpack in that question, um, but uh, so his his transformation has been stark. I, I you know I've said before that I, I think he's difficult to recognize even uh, if you compare the person who was elected in 2019 to the leader we have today in Ukraine. Um, it, 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 in one of the photographs I included in the book, or it's a pair of photographs that compares, that shows you his portrait um, of the day we met uh, during his presidential campaign, two months before he was elected, and then uh, our first interview during the invasion. Uh, and you, you see, you know, a couple months into the invasion. And I mean, it's a it's a different face. He's aged. It looks like he's aged. I don't know, ten years or something. Yeah, it's astonishing. Only 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 a few years have gone by, and you know, he talks openly about this. He's like, I'm I'm I'm. He admits I'm changing. He's growing a much thicker skin. He's becoming tougher. Um, you know, less patient. Uh, much less time with with his aides for banter and small talk and jokes and these kinds of things. Now it's really all business. He's very single minded, very focused. Um, and he he wears this kind of um, invisible armor that that gives you the sense that uh, you know this this guy is is made of metal. That is that was never. I mean, nothing like that existed <laughs> around around him. So it's it's almost like uh, you know he's he's come to embody this persona of the wartime leader that he had in his mind. Um, you know, in those early days of the invasion, he he imagined what what is a wartime leader supposed to do in a situation like this, and he in part, I think, because of his skills as an actor, um, you know, really was able to morph into that uh, role um, more completely and more quickly than than the average Joe uh, would have. 
you also write that his kind of inner circle has shrunk and and kind of has been divested of the kind of childhood friends that um, that once would have told him he was completely wrong. Just tell us a bit about that because I think that seems like such an important factor in 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 um, decision making often, and it's barely it's barely something that we can often see as as the public. But mm -hmm. but it was something, of course, that you, with the amazing access you had, you could actually watch firsthand. Yeah, well, you know, when you when you spend that much time there, you see people falling away, you see people getting pushed out of the inner circle, other people coming in. You know, these kinds of shifts they're they're very inside baseball, but they're very important to. Uh, understanding the dynamics within the leadership, so it's something I observed very closely. So yeah, I think as as a as a, as a general tendency, yes, over the course of his presidency, the the circle around him, the circle of advisors, has shrunk dramatically. In the beginning, it was a, it was a very big and somewhat chaotic uh, circle, where with with people with advisors and kind of hangers on and and people from the movie business and the tech industry and like you know people from all walks of life kind of hanging around the presidential compound, um, formally or informally advising the president and so on. Now it's it's a very tight, uh, fairly disciplined circle around him. Um, I would say the, the people who um, would contradict him or question his instincts, question decisions that he had made in his gut already, people who would try to dissuade him, those people as a, as a rule, and I'm generalizing here, but as a rule found themselves pushed to the side. He, he doesn't uh, do well with that kind of second guessing um, in his circle. So um, I, I wouldn't say that he's surrounded by yes men, you know, by any means. You know, the, the people around him still present him with, with uh, you know, a, a full picture of, 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 of the world, of the war, of the diplomacy. Um, but he does, um, you know, have a tighter circle around him. I think one, one trap that leaders often fall into, you know, if you look at history, in that situation, when you when you become more isolated, your access to information um, suffers. You you have more limited uh, sources of information, and you have to really trust your advisors to bring you accurate information. Zelensky has an interesting mechanism that I observed for checking what he's being told by senior aides and and officials. Uh, he travels a lot. He travels to the front, and he travels to foreign countries. Um, he travels around the country, and he talks to people. Regular people, soldiers, you know, grandmas, pensioners, whatever, and he listens to them. He, he really, you know, it's it's, a, it's interesting to observe. He really asks them, like, what do you think is going on? What's your experience of the war? How is your weapon system working here at the front? Is it good? Does it work? Uh, are there any problems I need to know about? And he takes that on board. And and from what I observed in traveling around with him, that is his kind of. Uh, um, uh, mechanism for for making sure that his information is 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 clean that he's getting from his top aides, and if he learns that that, that information is not sound, um, those aides will hear about it. Now the book is packed full of other interviews, of of course, as well, not just Zelensky, but the the first lady Alina Zelenska and opposition politicians and uh, and and others. Uh, there's one Simon that I'd like you to briefly introduce us to, and that's. Perhaps the second most powerful man in Ukraine, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, Zeluzny. Um, because, I mean, I, I think I always seen him as this kind of quite grimacing, hard looking, faintly scary man. But, <laughs> but the portrait that you painted of him was actually as a kind of slightly more fragile trickster, but, but certainly, certainly a much more human yeah, person yeah. And, and quite an unlikely commander in chief as well. So, 
So could you just tell us a bit about meeting him and what, what he was like? Yeah, he's also very, very charismatic, warm human. Um, you know, I, I'd met a, a fair number of generals over the years, including um, General Zeluzhny's immediate predecessor. Most of them came from, I'd say all of them came from the Soviet school of military discipline. They were kind of ramrod posture, fairly stiff. Uh, Zaluzhny is of a different generation. He, he never served in, in the Soviet military, in the Red Army. He's too young for that. Uh, he, he grew up in independent Ukraine, um, and his personality is just very different. He's very open, communicative, engaging, fun to be around. Um, he, he told me in one of our, uh, in, in our, in our main kind of conversation, our interview, that he wanted to be a comedian like Zelensky when he was growing up. And uh, his military career didn't leave him enough time to pursue his, his talents for comedy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try to paint him as, as three-dimensionally as possible, you know, in, in large part because he, he shed so much light on, on the main figure in the book, uh, uh, Zelensky. But also because understanding Zaluzhny is critical to understanding the war and where it's going. Um, so, so that relationship really runs through the book. You see it evolve from from its earliest days and, until the point when they they be, there began to be some serious tension between the two men. And is is that tension alive and well today? Is this something that you see? kind of getting worse, the kind of relationship between Zaluz and Zelensky? It's alive today, yeah. The, the relationship is tense, yes. The, you know, they, what, what you see, you know, in, in the book, and this is this has played out since I finished the book, you know, is that over time, you know, in the beginning of the invasion, Zelensky uh, wholeheartedly trusted the generals to do the fighting and, and didn't much get involved in their battlefield decisions. Uh, he would ask them, what do you need? How can I support you? Give me the list of weapons you need. So that I can then go banging on doors in every capital in the West and, and try to get those weapons for you. That was a kind of the synergy in the relationship between the president's office and the military command. Over time, what, what I saw is uh, President Zelensky uh, grew more confident in his own decision making as a military leader, his own uh, ideas of what needed to happen on the battlefield, his own uh, military priorities. Those didn't always align with those of the generals, and, and they began to have disagreements. Um, under the Constitution of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky is the supreme commander-in-chief. Um, so there were occasions, uh, including on very, very uh, important military decisions, where he pulled rank and overruled uh, General Zeluzhny and, and other commanders and, and told them what to do, told them where to attack, where not to attack, when to attack, how to use military resources. Right. So th that's sort of an evolution in Zelensky that you see over the course of the book. Uh, he, he steps into his own also as a military leader and strategist. So I mean, my, my last question is, is about the future. Um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing what you think the main challenges are for, for Zelensky now um, and, and whether it is this one which, which, which in, it kind of seems to rear its head more and more towards the end of the book, which is keeping Ukraine in, and himself, I, I suppose, in a way, in the spotlight, keeping the world's attention there. Um, and... And really, whether you think that is the main challenge for Ukraine and Zelensky now, and, and whether you have a, a sense of how Zelensky is going to kind of strategically try and confront that challenge in the, in, 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 across the rest of the year. That's one big challenge. I wouldn't say it's the biggest one. I, I'd say his, his biggest challenge these days in terms of communication is inspiring young men uh, and women in Ukraine to volunteer to serve in the military. There's, there's a real, real serious problem with recruitment, and they don't have the men. They don't have the numbers to fight, to continue fighting um, the, you know, the way that they have been. 
um, so that that's that's problem number one. Um, you know, yeah, in, in terms of winning and maintaining the support and, and the hearts and minds of people in the West, they're always looking for um, what Zelensky calls a, a new move. You know, meaning kind of a new twist, a new a new dramatic picture to show that Ukraine is winning. Um, he uh, takes enormous heart from these kinds of very dramatic attacks that we've seen, especially in recent days of exploding uh, fuel depots and oil terminals inside Russia. You know, this this is uh, very these are very dramatic uh, visually <laughs> um, uh, attacks. And they, they remind the world that Ukraine is pushing on. Ukraine is in this fight and it's not giving up. Um, so that's the message that he's going to continue uh, delivering. And, and I would expect much more along those lines in terms of in terms of the, the fighting, the battlefield. Uh, Zelensky started using this phrase active defense. Uh, that is that is what he means primarily. He means um, so, yes, there there is something that looks like a stalemate along the physical front line, the trenches in southern and eastern Ukraine. But uh, in other uh, theaters of, of this of this war, including the Black Sea and including Russian territory, Crimea, it's very dynamic. And the Ukrainians are, are um, using a lot of their own weapons, homemade weapons, uh, drones, missiles, uh, and, and other and other weaponry to to keep the Russians on the back foot to keep attacking. So I, I think uh, I very much expect that to continue um, in in the coming months. Well, Simon, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion, and and thank you uh, even more for what is I think a kind of really spectacular, brilliant book. Um, for those of you listening, it's called The Showman: The Inside Story of the Invasion That Shook the World, and made a leader of Vladimir Zelensky. And it's available now from your local bookshop. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Carmilla, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Paul. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.